You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 242, Raids Around New York. A few weeks ago, I talked about the Continental Army settling into winter quarters at Morristown, New Jersey, over the winter of 1779-1780. It was a brutally cold and snowy winter, made so much worse by the fact that the Army had no food or clothing and felt abandoned by the civilians for whom they were supposedly fighting. Despite the weather and deprivations, the Army did attempt a few raids and had to defend against a few British raids over that winter. One of the reasons that the British Army had traditionally felt protected in New York City was that it was almost completely surrounded by water, and the Americans would not really challenge the British Navy's control of those waters. The harsh winter changed that dynamic. Frigid weather froze over New York Harbor, requiring ships to move out to salt water that did not freeze over. The ice also provided a way for armies to simply march across that water. In January, the Continentals did just that. Staten Island is separated from New Jersey by a narrow waterway known as Arthur Kill, which, by the way, the name is a bastardization of Achterkill, Dutch for back channel. Because Staten Island was so close to American-occupied New Jersey and separated by even more water from the main British force on Manhattan, the island provided a tempting target for the Americans. General Sullivan had launched a massive raid on the island in 1777, but ran into trouble evacuating his men from the island after the British counterattacked. For more on that, see episode 153. In early 1780, the concerns about crossing the waterway disappeared when the Arthur Kill turned into a solid sheet of ice that could support both horses and cannon. In mid-January, General Nathaniel Green proposed a raid across that ice onto Staten Island. An army of 2,500 soldiers, broken up into smaller raiding parties and pulling small field cannons, could create some havoc on the British and Hessian encampments there. Green was one of Washington's most senior major generals, but Washington had made Green the army's quartermaster general nearly two years earlier at Valley Forge. Since the army was still desperately short of everything, Washington did not tap Green to conduct the raid. Instead, he turned to General William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling. General Lord Sterling was a New Jersey native who had fought the forage wars in northern New Jersey with a fair amount of success. Washington approved the plan for Sterling to take about 2,500 Continentals over the ice onto Staten Island in a night raid. They would take the local garrisons by surprise, take some prisoners, capture some supplies, and return to New Jersey before the main British army in Manhattan could react. Sterling launched his plan on the evening of January 14th. 
things did not go so well. The enemy saw the raiders coming and were able to man their fortifications before the Continentals could attack. The Americans had broken into smaller units in order to maximize speed and stealth. These smaller, unsupervised groups ended up focusing more on raiding local farms and helping themselves to much-needed food, clothing, and other necessities. Over in New York City, General Henry Clinton had left, along with General Cornwallis, for the siege of Charleston, South Carolina. Hessian General Wilhelm von Neiphausen held command with British General James Patterson, the senior British officer. Having received word of the raid on Staten Island, they attempted to send reinforcements. Attempts to move soldiers across New York Harbor by boat failed due to the presence of too much ice. Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe was on Staten Island during the raid. He reported that he wanted to lead a counterattack against the raiders, but could not convince the local Tory militia to hold the fortifications that his Queen's Rangers would have had to leave for such an attack. Even though the British could not get their reinforcements to the island, the Americans saw the British boats that were attempting to cross New York Harbor, and they determined that they needed to evacuate the island before the British could arrive. As a result, the Americans retreated in relatively good order and pulled back to New Jersey by the morning of January 16th. Now, both sides took a few battle casualties from the fighting, and the Americans managed to burn one British redoubt. They also captured 17 prisoners and looted a fair amount of property. The British managed to capture about 40 American stragglers or deserters. The Americans also ended up with about 500 men suffering frostbite from several days of marching in what has been described as waist-deep snow. On their return to New Jersey, officers attempted to search the men for items looted from civilians on the island. They said they found very little, although the locals complained greatly about the looting. It could simply be that the soldiers were too good at hiding their loot, or the officers were not terribly motivated to find it. Overall, the raid is generally considered a failure, since the Americans took more casualties than the enemy did. However, it put both sides on notice that even a brutal winter was not going to end the fighting season. A few days after the Staten Island raid, a contingent of Connecticut militia raided a home in Kingsbridge, near the northern tip of Manhattan Island. Kingsbridge was the edge of British-controlled territory. The target of the Connecticut militia was a house occupied by several Loyalist officers commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Hatfield, a notorious Loyalist militia leader who was a native of the area. The raid, led by Captain Samuel Lockwood of Connecticut, hoped to capture Hatfield and some of his fellow Tory officers in a night raid. The raiders attacked the home, shooting three guards and killing Hatfield's horse. About 15 Loyalist officers and men, alerted to the attack, threw up a defensive barricade inside an upper story of the house and held off the attackers for about 15 minutes. When the attackers threatened to burn the house with the men inside, the defenders agreed to surrender. The raiders led the prisoners north back to American lines. One of the prisoners, Major Thomas Hugaford, managed to escape. He returned to the main Loyalist regiment and was able to send a company of dragoons and infantry on horseback after the retreating militia. The Connecticut raiders managed to get their prisoners back to their lines, but left the bulk of their soldiers as a rear guard 
to confront the Loyalists pursuing them. The resulting battle, which quickly descended into hand-to-hand combat, led to the Patriot militia being overrun. Loyalist newspapers reported 23 rebels killed and another 40 captured, many of the prisoners also wounded. If those numbers are correct, that would be more than three-quarters of the original raiding party. Another report said there were only nine killed and 16 captured. Whichever number is correct, it was a pretty bloody casualty rate for such a small skirmish. The Loyalists withdrew back to their lines and ended the encounter. These two January raids put the British garrison in New York on notice that they were subject to more attacks. The traditional protection provided by the rivers and harbor and the inability of the Navy to sail through the icy water made New York much more vulnerable to attack this winter. Given that General Clinton had left for Charleston with most of his best soldiers, the 14,000 or so soldiers were largely made up of Loyalist militia, Hessians, and regulars who were not fit for active duty. British General Patterson began forcing any men of fighting age into active Loyalist militia forces. He also organized any sailors, either from the Navy or commercial fleets, into fighting units. This raised another five or 6,000 men, but men with little training, experience, or enthusiasm for fighting. If the Americans were able to assemble a large invasion, the British might be in serious trouble. Believing that the best defense is a good offense, and itching for some payback for the two American raids just launched against them, the British planned to conduct some raids of their own into New Jersey. Since crossing the frozen ice worked both ways, the British moved a large force to Staten Island with the plan of attacking Elizabethtown, New Jersey, known as Elizabeth, New Jersey today. Leading the attack was the provincial Lieutenant Colonel Abraham Buzkirk. You may recall that I mentioned Buzkirk during the 1777 raid on Staten Island back in episode 153. Buzkirk also led the attack on Light Horse Harry Lee's soldiers while they were attempting to withdraw from their raid on Paulus Hook, which I discussed back in episode 231. Buzkirk was a New Jersey native, a doctor from Bergen County. He had to abandon his home when he refused to support the Patriot cause and volunteered to raise a Loyalist regiment after the British captured New York City and had been stationed on Staten Island for the last several years. About a week after the Connecticut militia raid on Kingsbridge, Colonel Buzkirk assembled his regiment. The exact size of the raiding party is unclear. One source says that the regiment executed the raid along with a company of British dragoons and some local New York militia, totaling about 400 soldiers. Another source says that Buzzkirk acted on his own, with only about 130 soldiers from his Loyalist regiment. The target of this raid on Elizabethtown was the town courthouse, along with the Presbyterian Church. The Loyalists targeted the church because its pastor was the Reverend James Caldwell, known for his fiery speeches in favor of the Patriot cause and efforts to recruit soldiers for the Continental Army. Caldwell himself had served as a chaplain in the Continental Army for a time. The Loyalist raiding party crossed the icy Arthur Kill in a night raid on January 25th. They completely surprised the small garrison station at Elizabethtown, capturing 52 officers and men, primarily from the Maryland line. 
That same night, the Raiders returned to Staten Island, considering their raid a success. The same night as the raid on Elizabethtown, the British launched a second coordinated night raid, and this second attack targeted Newark, New Jersey. Major Charles Lum of the 44th Regiment of Foot commanded the garrison at Paulus Hook, reoccupied after the American raid earlier that summer. Lum led a 300-man brigade at night across the ice to attack the small American garrison at Newark. Lum caught the Continentals by surprise, capturing 32 of the 33 soldiers on guard duty, as well as four other soldiers swept up during the raid. The officer in command of the outpost, Captain John Noble Cumming of the 2nd New Jersey, and his second-in-command were staying in separate quarters and managed to escape. One of the targets of the Newark raid was a man named Robert Neal. He was working with the Continental Army's Quartermaster Corps and had been responsible for the seizure of food and firewood owned by local loyalists. Neal was taken into custody and imprisoned in New York. Also captured that night was Judge Joseph Hedden. Judge Hedden had not been a target of the raid ahead of time, but apparently one of the loyalists who was involved in the raid had a grudge against Hedden and convinced his comrades to capture him as well. The British dragged Hedden out of bed, wearing only a shirt and stockings. He requested to be allowed to put on some clothes, but was refused. When his wife tried to intervene, loyalist soldiers bayoneted her. Hedden was also taken to New York and suffered severe frostbite for having to march for miles in the snow without clothes. Afterward, the British troop returned to their base at Paulus Hook. Because the British raiders were successful in maintaining their element of surprise, there was little actual fighting on the raid. The British did not report any battle losses. Lum, however, did report that five of his men were missing. The men had marched at night across ice and snow, totaling about 20 miles. Several of the men fall behind in the march and were lost. Lum later reported that he found two of their bodies frozen to death. A week later, on the night of February 2nd, a British force left its northern outpost at Kingsbridge to launch an attack on the American outpost to the north. Lieutenant Colonel Chapel Norton led a group consisting of two companies of light infantry, two companies of grenadiers, several companies of Hessian infantry, several companies of mounted loyalists, led by James DeLancey, and mounted Hessian Jaegers. In total, this was a pretty large raiding group of between five and 600 men who embarked on a night march against the Americans. The weather was terrible, with a snowstorm raging, between one and two feet of snow already on the ground. The men attempted to use sleighs for transport, and including two small field pieces, but they quickly gave up on trying to move them through the snow and sent them back to Kingsbridge. The force continued on foot or horseback. Because of the weather, the attackers did not reach the American lines until well after dawn on the morning of February 3rd. The front-line American garrison fell under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Thompson, who commanded about 250 men from various Massachusetts regiments. His command was based at the home of local Joseph Young. Colonel Thompson received intelligence that an enemy force was approaching, but did not realize how large it was. He called in his guard posts and prepared to meet the attack. 
the attackers on horseback quickly overran the American pickets and began a firefight with the defenders inside the young house. They did not attempt to storm the house until the infantry arrived. Once the main British force arrived at the house, the men surrounded the Americans and pushed forward to take the house. Some Continentals fled but were run down by the cavalry. The British force, with its superior numbers, eventually stormed the house, capturing those inside, including a wounded Colonel Thompson. The entire fight took less than an hour. About half the Americans managed to escape, but the British killed 14, wounded 37, and marched 76 prisoners back to Kingsbridge. Among them was the wounded Colonel Thompson, who would, along with other officers, receive parole to Long Island. The enlisted prisoners were condemned to imprisonment in New York's infamous Sugar House Prison, where many of them died low-slingering deaths from disease and starvation. The British reported five killed and 14 wounded in the battle. After the attack, the British force burned the young house, leaving five wounded enemy soldiers inside the burning home. They also left some of the wounded who were too injured to make the journey back to Kingsbridge, who would likely die where they lay. The American relief force arrived on the scene too late to do anything, but report the attack back to the American commander, General William Heath, who relayed the, quote, disagreeable circumstances of the attack back to General Washington. Aside from these raids on outposts, the British also concocted a more daring attack. British intelligence learned that General Washington had established his winter quarters at a home in Morristown, about three miles away from the main army. General Knyphausen, still in command at New York, with Generals Clinton and Cornwallis away in Charleston, approved a raid to capture General Washington, similar to the raid that had captured General Charles Lee back in 1776. A relatively small group of cavalry would ride into the enemy lines at night, capture the general, and return to British lines before the Americans could react. With the solid ice still allowing passage by horses from Staten Island to the mainland, they believed the raid could be carried out rather quickly. Initially, the plan was to conduct a series of raids on American outposts that same night in order to provide a distraction. But poor weather caused delays, and the Americans withdrew from some of their more vulnerable outposts following the earlier British raids. Instead, the British raid would be bulked up to include 300 cavalry, a combination of the 17th Light Dragoons under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Birch and the Loyalists in the Queen's Rangers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe. The cavalry would be backed up by another 200 or so infantry who would provide cover for a retreat as they returned with the prisoner Washington in custody. At around 1 a.m. on the morning of February 11th, the British force crossed over Arthur Kill and began its night raid toward Morristown. Along the way, several diversionary forces hit Elizabeth and several other coastal towns, hoping to cause at least some distraction. The Americans, however, were not caught completely unprepared. Washington's lifeguard had drilled for just such an attack, setting up escape plans for George and Martha Washington. General Arthur Sinclair also organized nighttime horse patrols that were designed to intercept any such raiding parties. The Americans also caught a piece of luck. Days before the planned raid, 
the British cut off all travel between New York and New Jersey in order to prevent any word of the raid from reaching the Americans. One of the merchants cut off during this travel ban was a man from northern New Jersey who was attempting to sell food to the British in New York. The British officers asked if he would agree to serve as a local guide on the raid, and he agreed. Unbeknownst to the British, the merchant was, in fact, an American spy who had been in New York to gain intelligence. Taking advantage of the opportunity to lead the attackers astray, he did just that. The British could not avoid main roads because of the deep snow. They managed to avoid several continental checkpoints, but could not avoid the roaming horse patrols. The cavalry managed to make its way about six miles inland, but was still at least 20 miles from Morristown, when they realized that the poor weather and roaming patrols would make it impossible to reach Washington's residence while it was still dark and with the element of surprise. Colonel Birch ordered the firing of several rockets to indicate he was calling off the raid and that all raiders should return to Hackensack. So, the kidnapping raid never really got even close to success. It did, however, put the Continentals on greater alert so that they would be ready for the next such raid. The winter raids around New York accomplished relatively little in the broad scheme of things, but they did help to keep both sides on alert and probably made the suffering of the soldiers during that winter even worse. Next week, we're going to return to Europe, where the British Navy conducts a battle off the coast of Spain at nighttime and allows it to resupply its besieged garrison at Gibraltar. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Train Ants, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter Lee Seam. I greatly appreciate everyone who has made a continuing pledge on Patreon to help support the costs of this podcast. I have to offer up one correction this week. Last week, in my after show, I was talking about the history of conscription, and I said that Richard Nixon ended the last U.S. conscription in 1969. Several of you, 
including a few who were subjected to the draft in the early 70s, pointed out this error. Nixon had made an election promise to end the draft in 1968, but actually ended up extending the draft through most of his term of office. It was supposed to end in 1971, but Congress extended it until 1973. Of course, the Vietnam War was raging during those years. Congress and the Defense Department feared that ending the draft earlier would undercut the war effort. So, this week, I covered the skirmishing around New York over the winter of 1779 and 80. Even though this was the most brutal winter of the war, both sides remained active, raiding each other's outposts. Typically, European powers avoided this sort of winter raid. They had no real impact on overall strategy and only served to increase the suffering of the soldiers on both sides. But in this war, a big part of the American strategy was that, well, we can't kick you off the continent, but we can make your occupation as miserable as possible. So winter raids contributed to that effort. Most of these raids, as I said, focused on outposts right on the edge of contested territory. Now, the one raid that I mentioned that went deeper into enemy territory was the plan to kidnap George Washington. Now, the fact that the raid did not even get close to success is a testament to the growing professionalism of the Continental Army, which was maintaining roaming nighttime patrols and being prepared for such unlikely contingencies. Unlike outpost raids, kidnapping the commander-in-chief would have obviously had a major impact on the war, and the fact that the Continental Army was prepared to challenge any such attempts, as I said, is a testament to their growing experience as a professional army. My book recommendation this week is Diary of a Common Soldier in the American Revolution, 1775-1783, to an annotated edition of the Military Journal of Jeremiah Greenman, edited by Robert Bray and Paul Bushnell. Greenman was a soldier for the entire war, beginning in the Quebec campaign of 1775 and finally returning to his home in New England in 1783. His journals are not nearly as thorough or descriptive as the famous recollections of another Revolutionary War soldier, Joseph Plum Martin, but the editors do a great job of filling in context and more details about Greenman's journal. It's an interesting book, published in 1978, so it probably is pretty difficult to find an original copy. Uh, there are paperbacks out there that were printed later, and you can also borrow one on archive.org. My online recommendation is a short biographical sketch of the Hessian commander of New York at the time. It's called Wilhelm Baron Inhausen and Neithausen from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. It's an article that was first published in 1892 and, of course, is available on archive.org. My question this week asks, why did William Howe allow George Washington's army to slip away multiple times? And this is something I addressed in more detail in some earlier episodes, but I will take another crack at it. It is a question that many people ask at the time, and historians have asked ever since. During the invasion of New York, General Howe had multiple opportunities to take out the Continental Army or surround it and force its surrender. Many of his generals recommended plans to do this, and he rejected all of them. On several occasions when the British were chasing down the remnants of a fleeing Continental Army, 
General Howe called for them to slow down or halt. So, why would Howe do this? Now, some have argued that he sympathized with the American cause and simply did not want to win the war. I think this is an overstatement. Howe was quite sympathetic with the colonists, who had paid for a memorial to his brother in Westminster Abbey. His brother had died in America, fighting alongside the colonial militia during the French and Indian War. In fact, he died in the arms of Charles Lee, who would later become a major general in the Continental Army. Just before the American Revolution, William Howe was a member of Parliament and told his constituents that he would never go fight against the colonies in America. He opposed many of Parliament's policies that were unpopular in the colonies. His sister was even a good friend of Benjamin Franklin's. All that said, I don't think Howe tried to throw the war to the colonists. Once he agreed to serve in America, he did plan to do his duty. But like many British leaders, he did not think a bloodbath was necessary to win. The Americans had no professional army and almost no experienced officers. His plan was to show up with an overwhelming force, prove that British forces in the field were invincible, and wait for the colonists to panic and sue for peace under terms set in London. The plan almost worked. The British pushed the colonists out of New York City over a series of battles. The Continental Army virtually collapsed as men simply deserted the cause and went home. No one wanted to be with the army when it finally surrendered and faced charges of rebellion. Most colonists in New York and New Jersey accepted amnesty and took oaths of allegiance. By December of 1776, it all seemed over. Howe figured the final remnants of the army would disperse over the winter and that he could return home victorious in the spring. If Washington had not been successful in his desperate attacks on Trenton and Princeton, that almost certainly would have been the case. Even so, why didn't Howe simply end the fighting sooner by capturing the Continentals in New York City? There are several good reasons which may have weighed on Howe. First, even though he wanted to win, he did not want a massacre. If the British had surrounded the Americans and fought an all-out pitched battle, there would have been heavy casualties on both sides. Howe did not want to be remembered as a butcher. He wanted to be remembered as a friend of the colonies who put down the armed rebellion with a gentle touch. Second, Howe's first battle command in America had been at Bunker Hill. His own army took horrific casualties in that battle. And from that day, Howe took the lesson that, while militia were unlikely to stand and fight in the field against his soldiers, they would do so effectively from a good defensive position. So Howe did not want to overrun entrenched positions, such as the Continental position on the East River in Brooklyn, because it could lead to massive deaths of his own men. Third, Howe knew the difference between experienced field officers and inexperienced ones was that experienced officers never took chances unless absolutely necessary. And with his inferior foe, there was no reason to take chances. Pursuing a retreating army too quickly could result in being led into an ambush. It could also result in your pursuers being spread out too much and your lead forces becoming subject to a counterattack. Howe wanted to make sure that the Americans did not have even a small victory, which might give them hope and shore up morale. 
by keeping his British and Hessian forces together, and therefore having to move more slowly, he was prepared to crush any attempted counterattack. This would promote the view that the British regulars were invincible. As I said, this plan almost worked. Howe's one mistake was assuming that the remnants of the army that retreated to Pennsylvania in December of 1776 were finished. He made the mistake of setting up isolated outposts in New Jersey because he thought the Americans had essentially given up and just needed time to accept that fact. The result was Washington's counterattack at Trenton that upset all of his plans. Howe's other major campaign in America was, of course, the Philadelphia campaign, which he fought a bit more aggressively. He attempted to flank the Americans at Brandywine, and if he could have surrounded and captured the enemy army, he probably would have at that time. By that point in the war, the Americans were better at retreating without it becoming a complete rout. Howe still moved slowly and deliberately as he advanced in Philadelphia, He still feared taking his army into an ambush. He probably hoped the Americans would make a last stand at Philadelphia and then surrender. Even if they did not, taking the capital city would hopefully end the rebellion. Of course, it did not. Howe's capture of Philadelphia, while leaving the Northern Army stranded to surrender at Saratoga, resulted in his recall to London. Howe had to justify his actions at parliamentary hearings the following year, and made many of the arguments that I explained here today. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.